Hello, and welcome to America and Democracy from the MIT Press Podcast. My name is Sam Kelly, and in this series of interviews, I'm asking authors to reflect on the state of American politics ahead of the election on November 3rd. So far in the series, we've discussed corruption, McCarthyism, and anti-vaxxers. And in this episode, I'll be speaking to George Zakadakis about his book, Cyber Republic. In this book, George discusses how technology may provide some of the solutions to the crises being faced by liberal democracies. George leads Future of Work at Willis Tower Watson in Great Britain, a global risk and human capital consulting firm. He's also the author of In Our Own Image, The History and Future of Artificial Intelligence. He's written extensively on science and technology for publications including Aeon and Wired. a good place to start. Would you be able to talk a little bit about the the crises that you write about in the beginning of your book, your experience in Greece, and how that kind of led you to the writing that you do in the book? Absolutely. So there were a, a few things that triggered the desire to write this book. I think if I was to isolate three of them would be my own background in artificial intelligence and my work that I do. Uh, the work that I do in artificial intelligence, the fact that I work uh, over the past few years in a company with big clients of ours that are, are adopting artificial intelligence and how this impacts work and the workplace. But I think that the singular event, however, that kind of like made me really want to think more broadly those two things in the context of the future of democracy and our, and our politics and in our lives was what happened at the Great Recession, right, in 2008, 2009, especially what happened to, to the country where I originated from in Greece, which was the, you know, the worst hit country, say, in Europe. So what happened there was, you know, we saw a replay of the 1930s uh, in a much smaller scale, I guess, a scale of a small country, but trust in democracy, the rise of extremists, very prominent Nazi party, in Greece, you know, getting like almost 7% of the vote, becoming the third party in the Greek parliament. And, and that worried me. I, you know, I, I used to think that we, that, was a, that was the past. And, you know, the future would be a future of continual progress, of more democracy. And, and the lessons I think we all learned during the crisis, that it's that we should not take that for granted, that uh, we can regress, in fact, to, to the most authoritarian, the, the most polarizing, uh, kind of kind of society, a true dystopian. So, with that in mind, I thought, okay. So, you know, as a technologist, right, as someone who's working with technologies that will affect the future of work, that are already affecting democracy, that are you know having a huge impact in our way of life. Uh, what is my position here? How can I contribute to this conversation? And, and I think that's what led me to start thinking in more detail uh, the impact of technology and how we can perhaps rethink technology to change its purpose and his goals. Yeah. And my impression from reading the book was twofold, really, that the liberal democracy, as you call it, is in crisis already, but also we need to prepare for what could be a crisis or what could be a great opportunity. Could you talk about where you see the current crisis of liberal democracy and the technologies that present the opportunity for good things and bad things on the horizon? Absolutely. So... If I was to perhaps offer like three keywords here to help us sort of unpack the book and, and examine its content, would be, first of all, the word trust, the word hope, and the word virtue. And let me explain what, what I mean by that. So a system such as a liberal democracy and indeed democracy requires 
a high degree of trust. The people trusting each other and the people trusting the government. When that trust erodes, then the whole system comes tumbling down. And we clearly see there is a deficit of trust here. Uh, all the data show that. And even from our private conversations, each and every one of us realizes that there is very little trust in the politicians. We think that the game is rigged. Uh, we see clearly the influence of interest groups and powerful political decisions. Citizens have been excluded and all the rest. So the big problem of trust. And around this problem of trust also is the problem of misinformation, which is at the heart of democracy, right? Can we trust the facts? Can we trust the data? Can we trust the videos we watch? So here's where technology comes in and makes this problem of trust a lot worse because it, it hits right at the heart of, of how we form our opinions and therefore our trust for others, which is on the basis of facts, okay? So this is one big pillar, and maybe we can discuss, you know, what's wrong with technology and how we can fix it. The second thing is hope, and by that I mean for democracy again to function, we, every one of us, should have a stake in the future, right? We should really believe in the system, in other words, that the system, you know, if, if you put a lot of work and a lot of effort into it, you know, you'll get something out of that, okay? And for most of us, that means, you know, through our own work, right? So if you're not you know, in possession of a, of a capital that can be invested, the other, other thing you, can, you have is your own skills, your talent, your imagination, your creativity, and in fact, your work. So what we see there, I think, and that's where this, the impact of AI and automation comes very strongly in play, is that those automation technologies create a lot of efficiency in the market, but a lot of dislocation as well. And as those technologies become more intelligent and therefore can take away more and more cognitive tasks from jobs, we see a disintegration of work, right? We see a platforming of work as well, which translates, and we can explain those words in a moment if you like, but what it ultimately explains is more uncertain work. So jobs, work in the next 10, 20 years in the future will be more sporadic, less stable, and that creates a lot of uncertainty. At the same time, the business models that are prominent in the digital economy, namely those digital platforms, are such that they, the outcomes are a winner-takes-all. So, for example, if you are a big company and you are able to grow very fast and you capture the market, and I, which means you capture the data and you have the network effects, then it's very difficult for newcomers to come in. Okay, so dominant monopolies, winners-takes-all, all the money goes to a small percentage of the population, and what happens to the rest of us, we are going into an era of less work and less security. So that creates a problem of hope. Right? How can you hope into the future when the future looks so bleak? And therefore, the question is, okay, there's a lot of ideas around policies and robot tax and UPI, but I was thinking, okay, what can we do about technology, right? What, how can we tweak technology to prevent such a dystopian future? And, and this other word that I'm also using is this word of virtue, which explains why should we bother about democracy? Now, why should we save it? I mean, what's wrong with having an enlightened dictatorship where you don't have to worry about anything, you know, everything is taken care of, right? You can go and do your hobbies, you know, you get a check in the mail from the government and, and everybody's happy. I mean, that sounds like a utopia, right? So this is more of a philosophical rather than technological question, but that is a very important question as well. What is about democracy that is so important that we should preserve it? And my argument there is that it's a political system that can make better people. It's a moral argument, if you like, and we can discuss that a little bit more as well, but there's not a lot of technology involved in that.
just to kind of lead on from that, um, could you talk a little bit about um, a term that crops up throughout the book, liberal democracy, liberal and liberalism has different meanings, you know, in America as it does in Europe. Could you clarify exactly what you mean when you say that you want to defend liberal democracy? So, personally, because I don't, I didn't, I don't have a, a background in political science, I had to do a lot of reading in order to understand those terms myself. And quite frankly, I was shocked when I, I finally understood what liberal democracy means, because I was under the impression that it meant democracy. And, and it doesn't, actually. Uh, it's a system that has a certain degree of democracy, and by that I mean that every four years we're asked to select uh, who will represent us and govern us for the next four years. So that is the democratic element. But apart from that, it's it's non-democratic at all. It's a very elitist system. It's based on uh, a small elite of representatives who are uh, also experts and a civil service that supports them in order to govern a country, right? So as, you know, Rousseau, the, the French philosopher mentioned, and he made this comment for England, actually, you know, the English think that are free, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but they're only sovereign every, every time they vote for the, for the government, right? Otherwise, they're slaves. Okay, that's what he said. And that, you know, it's a bleak description of what liberal democracy is. However, there is something else as well in liberal democracy. There's the rule of law, which is very important, right? So there is no abuse of power, the, uh, the power by the elite is, is checked by an independent judiciary. Uh, there's also other institutions, you know, civil society and so on. So it's a complex system that's trying to balance the will of the people, which is a dangerous thing because uh, we're all emotional creatures and usually we react on the basis of emotion and very rarely on the basis of reason. So in order to balance the emotion with reason, there's all those checks and balance and have some common sense in, in decision making. And when I realized that, you know, and overcame the first shock that it wasn't really democratic, uh, it was a little democratic, was that perhaps this is, this is the best system of all, right? Uh, in terms that, you know, we can be free, our, our liberties can be guaranteed, we can check the government. The design is okay. I think the execution is wrong right now because the problem with the execution right now is that because the way the system is uh, set up, small interest groups within democratic societies have an enormous influence, an inordinate influence to the policy making that takes place uh, at the level of parliaments and governments. They exert too much influence. Okay, and going back to the problem of trust that I mentioned before. So this problem is called the principal agent problem in, in politics, which I explain in the book. Essentially, you know, you give the right to somebody to represent you and that uh, person's uh, interest may not align with yours, right? This is the principal agent problem, okay? So the big question I'm, I'm examining in the book is, if we want to improve government in a liberal democracy, in my opinion, we should involve more direct participation of citizens in that decision-making. I think that this will increase trust. It will also increase virtue because it's much easier to just sit at the back, sit on your couch and be critical about government and don't have any responsibility and just shout about your rights. But once you start being responsible for your decision, that creates better citizenship, most definitely. And we've seen that. We have, you know, ample evidence of uh, things like citizen assemblies and citizen juries, how they completely transform people and completely transform politics as well. So one of the key propositions in the book is how can we take those well-tested ideas of citizen democracy, deliberative democracy, and make them new institutions. So, you know, at local level, you know, regional level, country level, you know, federal, even international level, we have more citizen participation. Yeah, I 
really want to ask you more about citizens' assemblies. But first, one thing I want to just clarify as well is one thing I find really interesting about the book actually is you think that capitalism can be reformed. So you think that capitalism should be maintained in you know this new world order, but it needs to be reformed. Could you talk about why you don't think that these problems are just the problems of capitalism uh, and how you think it can be reformed? Absolutely. So, so first of all, let me give my definition of capitalism. It's, it's a word that's you know, invented by Marxists, but essentially what that word means is that uh, there is a, a framework for people to transfer with their economic life that allows them to, to take this decision in the freer, in the most free way possible. Okay? So that means if I want to transact with you, I can be free to agree a price and agree the terms without somebody else forcing us to do something different, okay? So it's all about economic liberty. I'm very much in favor of economic liberty. I, I, I want to defend economic liberty. I think it's very essential for, for human happiness and has proven its, its worth in, in how, you know, the world today is much richer and offers much more opportunity to billions of people uh, because of free markets and free trade. So what's wrong there for? right? What's wrong? The thing that is wrong about free markets is that they're not very free. They are being regulated by governments. And as I said before, those governments are under the influence of special interest groups. So what you see uh, often in, uh, in regulation is that the regulation is supposed to uh, control the market, which is a good thing. I mean, markets need to be somehow regulated. Markets can easily fail. So we need regulation, most certainly. But we need the right regulation. And the right regulation for me is to level the field as much as possible. So you can have people, you give people opportunity to invent things, to innovate things and, and become successful. Clearly what we're seeing today is this is, not, this is not what's happening right now. What happens now is regulation often favors the incumbents. Take, for example, GDPR, okay, which is the European regulation for the protection of, of data. And we can speak a little bit more about data perhaps because this is very at the core of, uh, of what I'm suggesting. So GDPR is great, has great intentions. It's supposed there to uh, protect the privacy of data of citizens and it should be commended. However, the, re- the end result is as follows. If you are a citizen and you feel that your privacy has been violated, it's very difficult for you to exercise that right because there is a very limited demo- a bureaucracy that is there in order to serve your interests. Therefore, we have a, a huge bottleneck. We have millions of people and a small bureaucracy, right? So essentially, uh, the rights that we have for privacy are very limited. And you can, you know, you've experienced that every day. If you go onto a site and you say, I don't accept cookies, you can't use the service. So this is the problem of regulation. And GDPR also sets high bars for small companies and, and startups and innovators to break into this market, right? Because the compliance cost is very high. So I'm just giving you some examples. So how can we perhaps, you know, reform capitalism? By creating better governance. That is the key here, right? Better governance of companies and better regulation. So with companies, for example, right? What you see, for instance, in, in private companies right now is that a lot of the profits that a company creates is used to buy back uh, shares, okay? This is legal, but it's definitely unethical and wrong. I mean, what, what you see there is clearly, you know, the executive teams that are paid, big percentage of the pay uh, is based on equity, no, they're just rigging the system. So money that is not, that is, the profit is meant to go into investment and productivity and, and all the rest, right? But it's not. So how can we change the governance of companies? How can we, you know, transform digital platforms? How we can have, you know, the model of mutual ownership 
sort of reinvented in the age of um, AI and data and blockchain. These are sort of some of the ideas that I'm examining. But at the heart of the problem is governance. Okay, okay. And then perhaps now we can lead on to a discussion of uh, uh, citizens' assemblies and some of the other ideas you put forward in the book for solving these very problems. For sure. So citizen assembly, you know, what the citizen assembly is, you, uh, you get together a group of people who, uh, whose uh, composition, constitution is, is reflective of the wider community, which uh, has a stake in the issue, whatever that issue that might be. So for example, if we're talking about national issues, let's say we, we wanted the citizen assembly to discuss COVID pandemic and the, and the measures, then we would select a group of citizens that reflects in, say, England or Wales or Scotland or whatever. So you bring those people in together. I think a, a prerequisite is that those people are not experts in the subject. This is really important, and I really need to emphasize that. The current sort of frame of mind is that the problems have to be solved by experts. But I would argue that you can't solve problems with experts only. In fact, you can... You can you can end up not solving anything with experts. And we clearly see now, you know, with COVID-19, with the pandemic, you know, we've got, you know, all those bunch of experts uh, across the world, right? Uh, you know, great scientists, but we're in the mess, okay? And I think one of the reasons why we're in the mess is that citizens are not being included in the conversation about uh, lockdown measures, right? Usually the great thing about citizen assemblies is that they help depolarize society. That is the great thing about them. And we need to depolarize for instance, you know, again, just give you an example of a pandemic, you know, the discussion between lockdown or not lockdown, masks or not masks, you know, it's, it's, it's a polarized opinion that's not based on facts. You know, there are facts on the other side of the argument. Right? It's a political conversation. It's always a political conversation. And political conversations without the participation is because politicians have a stake in polarizing. Okay, so if I'm a conservative, I have to defend my position, okay, and I will, you know, give you conservative arguments, right? And I will no, and if I'm left-wing, I'll do the same because I'm a professional politician and I'm, you know, that, that's what people vote me for. They vote me for, for, my, for my point of view. But if I forget that I'm a politician and I'm not and I'm just a citizen, okay, I don't have an agenda. The only thing that I want is, you know, to be, you know, in good terms with my neighbor and be happy in my community, right? So we're talking about completely different interests here. And that's why I, I truly think that, you know, introducing citizen assemblies as a new liberal institution uh, to have an advisory role, but also a role so that people feel that they've been represented by their peers in this conversation, in addition to the elected representatives, I think that will, that will definitely build uh, the trust that is necessary for, for this political system to survive. No, I find them really interesting, and I'll, I'll come clean, actually. That I, so I am anti-capitalist, but... As I was reading your book, one thing that did come to mind repeatedly was this idea of building consensus and uh, feeling myself disagreeing with you at certain points, but ultimately agreeing with you in the desire for certain outcomes. And citizens' assemblies seem to have that kind of process. One question I wanted to ask about them, though, is about the horizon of possibility. So who sets the horizon of possibility for the discussions that those assemblies can have you know, for example, I think the example in your book was uh, a kind of neuroscience dis a discussion about policy around neuroscience, but, you know, discussion around um, reparations in America, for example, people that have inherited wealth from slave owners, having that wealth. Who sets the horizon for what is 
you know, what happens when the assembly asks for something that they're not willing to give up? That, that is a good question. So until now, the way citizen assemblies have been used has been around specific issues. And uh, their role was to uh, a consultative role to, to a parliament. So it was a way to uh, really listen to citizens, but citizens that have increased their knowledge about the subject and not just, you know, citizens who have just read one newspaper that essentially echoes their point of view. You know, there has been some deliberation. So that's the value of citizen assembly so far. And to, to answer your point, you know, representatives, either parliaments or perhaps the government, decide what would be the issue that the citizen assembly will discuss. Okay, so it's set by the representative sort of members of, of parliament, let's say. Now, we think into the future to imagine citizen assemblies now coming together ad hoc, okay, and deciding their own agendas. And I think that's how democracy will evolve ultimately. For instance, you know, in, in some countries like Switzerland, uh, and Switzerland doesn't have citizen assemblies that has a referenda, you know, if you, if you have an idea that something needs to be changed, and if you gather a certain uh, number of citizens to back you up, then that will force a referendum, okay? So I think we need to have this, this thing in democracy, right? Going back to this idea that I said to you about virtue, you know, that, that makes responsible citizens, okay? When we are actually involved and have some kind of power to influence the policy outcomes. Yeah, okay. Maybe we could move on to a discussion about AI. A lot of disagreement about what AI is, what it can be, the effect it's going to have on the world. Depending on who you ask, it's either going to do everything or it's overhyped. Could you talk a little bit about how you see AI, what you think the effect it's going to have is going to be, and some of the risks that you point out in the book? Absolutely. So let me begin by saying that the reason why we're having problems, issues, discussions around AI is because artificial intelligence is very much an ideology rather than a technology. Okay? And I'd like to explain to you what I mean by that. The ideology of AI is built on the, on, the, on the concept of autonomy. So just to give you a little bit of historical context, in the 1940s, 50s, a dominant intellectual concept that was discussed and you know, very influential across, across all science and engineering was the concept of cybernetics, how we can build systems where humans and machines collaborate and the goals are human goals. Okay? So how do we build this sort of, this sort of future? Artificial intelligence was created, if you like, within that wider intellectual milieu, right? Uh, sort of concept. But then it became disengaged in 1957. And the first manifesto of AI immediately spoke about the autonomy of the machine. So the machine, not in collaboration with humans, but in juxtaposition, in conflict with humans. And from then on, what you see is, uh, you know, the great milestones of AI are, my, are milestones where the machine beats the human. Now, at the basis of autonomy, autonomy is different from automation. Automation is, is you have a process, you have some rules, and instead of you doing it mentally or, or, or physically, you have a machine do it. Okay? So it takes out something that you don't really like. Okay? And that's a great thing. Automation should be embraced, absolutely. But autonomy requires some sort of reasoning. So you and I are human beings and we are autonomous because it has free will, right? We can decide on the basis of reason, you know, take decision A instead of decision B or do nothing, okay? Nothing compels us. It's our own reason. And that's what makes us autonomous. So once you have this idea of autonomy embedded in technology, all kinds of problems come up. 
And this is exactly what, you know, the biggest problems we have right now. Let's take, for example, you know, bias in AI. Uh, why are we worried about, you know, uh, sort of, you know, algorithms excluding people from, uh, you know, from life? Okay, because those algorithms are built on the basis of autonomy. Okay, they're not built with having humans in the loop. So what I'm suggesting in the book is that we should completely rethink artificial intelligence from its foundations, and we're going in the wrong way right now. Okay, every time I hear, you know, AI engineers and AI sort of futurists talking about a future where you know you have this super intelligence. I mean, this is a this is a completely dystopian future. I mean, who wants to create a monster here? You know, and I think we should stop that immediately. Okay. I think artificial intelligence should uh, sort of reconnect itself to the so-called cybernetic roots. But essentially what AI should do is become part of human culture and human society. So what I would like to do is to have AI systems that help me learn, for example, okay? help me learn a problem. I don't want AI systems to have a problem by themselves. I want, I want them to have my goals. I don't want them to have their own goals. So that's why I'm, I'm totally, you know, against AI autonomy. <laughs> and I think that's where the problem is. Okay. And just to continue down that train of thought a little bit and take it back to um, the question of monopolies, I think one thing we've seen with the birth of the internet was that there was this kind of utopianism, a kind of futurism. Uh, and then what we saw was the same kind of, um, the nature of monopolies, you know, reimposed itself. How can we avoid that in this new technology? How can we prevent monopolies just producing AI in the dystopian way that you've described there? So, so let's, let's try and focus it on, the, on, on your question, right? Let's, let's talk about monopolies and AI, because I think that will unpack it uh, much better. So at the heart of AI development is data, okay? So the technologies we have around AI are technologies like uh, deep neural networks and, and machine learning, which improve on the basis of data. And the reason why we now see those tech monopolies Right. which, by the way, you know, are subject to antitrust law, and there's a lot of pressure both in the U.S. and in Europe to, uh, you know, to do something about it and break them down and so on. But I don't think the problem will be solved, you know, just simply by, by, with antitrust law. We, we need to rethink technology itself, and we need to think the ecosystem of technology. So let me explain what I mean. So if we want to create a much level playing field for uh, entrepreneurs, for communities, for societies, for citizens, for whomever, right? So we can all have a stake in the future. So we're not marginalized. We're not rendered all unemployed, okay? And dependent on state, or dependent on big companies, or dependent on anything. If we want to preserve our freedoms and liberties, in other words, we must have a stake in that. And one way of having a stake in the future is understanding the value of data. After all, those valuable data are created by, by each and every one of us uh, through our interactions which is really interesting because, you know, they, the idea of property uh, in, in our minds and the legal system usually refers to individual property. But if you start thinking about data and thinking about maybe, you know, citizens should have data rights, which have a certain value, and therefore they can be part of an economy of data, and therefore we can monetize that data. If you start thinking about along those routes, then you realize that it's only in combination that those this, this data have, have value. And that's why this idea, again, of, you know, communities and networks as opposed to individuals comes into play, which I think is very important, especially when you start thinking economics, because so far the economics around, you know, everything that we talk about is about, you know, individuals transacting with individuals, this concept of homo economicus. But in the future, in a future economy that is based on data, that is based on knowledge, that is based on algorithms, is based on creativity, it's the interactions in the community that really add the value. 
It's, uh, there are the networks. So we need to think differently in, in, for an economy of abundance for the future. So how do we do that in practical terms? Let's focus on the data. Uh, and one of the uh, ideas that I'm discussing in the book is, is this concept of the data trust. Okay, so a data trust is an organization. Think of it as a cooperative, perhaps, where, you know, let's say a data trust for London or data trust for the city that you're in now. And all the citizens are, you know, shareholders, in fact, in that cooperative, okay, that collects everybody's data from sensors, from whatever, right? And then makes that data available under contract and with governance to any company that wants to tap into this data. So this way is a way of actually monetizing, if you like, our personal data for the betterment of everybody both for the economy and innovation and competitiveness and new jobs and all that stuff, but also for us. And if, you know, when, when people think about UBI, for example, right, and, and I agree with the, definitely with the, with the reason for that, I, I just disagree with the, with the way of executing it. You know, one of the big problems about ABI is how you fund it. Another big problem about ABI is what sort of level it's going to be, right? It's going to be a decent enough level for people to survive or, or at least, you know, cover those troughs where work is intermittent or, or not. So we need to find ways to fund our lives of the future, right? And fund them, in my opinion, productively, actively, rather than passively. So I think that data trust may be one way of doing that. Okay? And it can be extremely valuable. We're talking about billions of dollars and pounds here, not, not thousands. The final thing that I'm going to ask you is about hope. You talk about how you would like it to happen, how you would like these technologies to kind of emerge into the world and into the economy. You talk about how that could go wrong. But how do you think it actually will happen? How optimistic are you? In the, the preface to your book, authored by Don Tapscott, he kind of talked about writing his book about the internet and the small section of the book where he talks about all the risks all come true. <laughs> and yeah, so could you talk about how optimistic you are about these technologies in the next 20 years? Absolutely. So, okay, I usually answer this question by prefacing like this. If engineers, and I'm an engineer, are usually optimistic. Okay, as opposed to, let's say, economists who are usually not very optimistic, pessimistic. Economists usually are right, by the way. But I can't help it. I need to be an optimist. I need to be an optimist because the alternative is just too dystopian for me to even, even, even fathom. Uh, and as a parent, I don't want this, you know, this to be the future of my, of my kids, right? And anyone's kids, by the way. I, I want our children, grandchildren, next generation to, to be able to develop human civilization further, make, make Earth a fairer place, you know, all those, all those good things, you know. And that will not happen unless individual liberty and freedom is, are preserved. You know? we, we can't imagine a future where we are subject to, you know, an authoritarian state. I think that would be a nightmare. Therefore, I need to be an optimist. And that is why I sat down and to avoid a dystopian future. How can we rethink our technology? Because technology is not a phenomenon. It's not like the weather. Right? It's something that's human-made. We can change it. You know, it's, a, it's a matter of decisions. Like going back to the idea of autonomy about AI, that was an idea that was, you know, per, you know happened in, in a bunch of, about a dozen people in, in a place in Dartmouth, like many years ago. Just, you know, those people just came around the table, they came up with an idea, and 60 years later, here we are today discussing it, right? So it's, it's, it's just about ideas and ideologies. So I would like us to just start changing our ideology around this thing, okay, and start thinking that, okay, there are other ways of using technology to democratize the economy. So I'm speaking, for example, around, you know, Web 3.0 technologies and tokenization of platforms. You know, think of an Uber, for example, where the drivers are the shareholders and also the riders are the shareholders, okay? And therefore, when we use this service, we not just enjoy the service, but we have the benefit 
of earning money from the network effects that take place in the service, right? So the big money in, the, in those digital platforms come from transactions within the platform. How many people use the, the cars, for instance, or how many people use the software, or how many people use this, you know, these are the network effects. Right now, in the, current, in the current economic system, those network effects, the value from the network effects, goes only to the investors and, and small number of shareholders, right? This is the winner-takes-all economy. This is clearly unsustainable. But how do we reinvent that? Okay? It's very difficult in practical terms to think of existing tools and methods like, for example, shares, bonds. You know, they're, they're made for the 20th century. Right? They're not made for the 21st century. We need to reinvent the tools that we have in order to democratize the wealth. And that's where technology plays a very important role. So, you know, ultimately, my hope is, you know, by writing this book, and hopefully it will be read by, you know, people who are not so, so technology-oriented, to understand there are ways of doing things in a different way. And this is not, you know, a destiny, okay? We, there isn't a destiny. We can change it. George, that's uh, a great place to finish it, if that's okay with you. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out to speak to me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. And thank you very much for your questions. Uh, no, it's good. No, you're welcome. No, it's, it's been really, it's really interesting, actually, because I'm certainly someone who's not very technology fluent, but is really interested in political theory. So, yeah, I found it a really interesting read and have really enjoyed chatting to you today. Cool, cool, cool. Thank you for listening to the MIT Press Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, please like, subscribe, and share this episode. I'd like to thank Samantha Doyle, who edits and mixes the podcast, and Kristen Galano, who produced the soundtrack. And once again, please remember to join a union, support independent journalism, and vote on November 3rd. <laughs>